Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus. And I'm sorry we haven't got Al today. The reason we haven't got Al today is because he is doing the audiobook of my new book, The Savage Storm, uh, and he hasn't quite finished it. He's got a couple of chapters to go. I always try and write sort of shorter books, but they always end up being longer than intended. And, you know, that's the case here. So anyway, but, you know, John, it's not like we haven't got enough to talk about. So um, anyway, first of all, how are you? You've been watching soccer? I have, and finally some good soccer here. And uh, my our MLS team, St. Louis City, won six to three the other night. It was the most entertaining game. It was incredible, beautiful goal. I mean, you sent sent a photo, and it, it looked like it was quite a big crowd there. I mean, what what are you yeah. getting there? Kind of twenty five thousand, something like that. We got about twenty two and a half. Uh, that's as much oh, as okay. stadium holds. So it's been sellouts every time. When the, Jim, when when these season tickets came up for sale, when when we got this team, they had sixty thousand plus deposits in a matter of a day or two. Um, wow. For a stadium that holds one third of that, yeah, right. It's just so. It's do, just do you think it might that they might be adding stands soon? I don't think there, there's any plans for that because they like the intimacy of it, and it really is an incredible stadium. But I guess it's growable. But there, there's they could they could get more in there for sure because tickets are hard to come by in St. Louis this year, and, and actually the team's really good. It's a first year team, but they're in first place in the Western Conference, so it's like incredible. So I'm having fun with that and, and just forgetting all about Everton and that they even exist. Um. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, listen, I should just warn anyone who's listening, if you can hear a little bit of ambient noise and a, um, a tiny bit of clattering around about, that's because I'm actually recording this in the heart of Soho in London. And that's because I've just been, I've just been telling you, John, I've, I've just had lunch with Jim Webb, who was former Secretary of State for the Navy in, in the Reagan administration, Vietnam veteran, 
um, and, a, and a pretty serious hardcore one, wrote one, one of the great novels of the Vietnam War called Fields of Fire, wrote that amazing novel, one of my favorite novels of all time called The Emperor's General, all about MacArthur, Yamashita, and, and, and one of his translators on MacArthur's staff, um, and was, you know, has been involved in, in American politics for a very long time. Uh, and it was senator. great to catch up with him. Yeah, yeah, he was senator for Virginia, Democratic senator, even both. So he's he's kind of you know he's been on both sides of the fence. Yes, and you know he's very much a centrist. Um, and frankly, God, if only he could be president of the USA. But you know, there you go. Yeah, you're, you're talking my language. Yeah, well, he's a, he's a fantastic bloke. Um, a really, really nice guy. And um, I, I've been buttering him up to to get him on the podcast because he what he knows about the U.S. Marine Corps is is a huge amount. He's absolutely immersed in it. And actually, it'd be very interesting one day to get him on and talk about his experiences in Vietnam. Because I think, you know, once in a blue moon, I think we can sort of venture out. We did the Zulu Wars with, with Al and we've done the Falklands. And, you know, I think you can sort of foray occasionally. And actually, he was talking about the Spanish-American War. Um, and I was thinking, gosh, wouldn't that be interesting to do at some point? Because, very. of course, so much of what happens in the, in the Pacific War and the war in the Far East revolves around colonial life beforehand before the war you know, especially and, in the philippines i mean it's course, the entire yeah. root of it and I, I think we could look at it from that angle especially yeah so very interesting seeing him but as a consequence <laughs> to, to make make sure that um you and i kind of hooked up at the right time um joey has come out to join me here in um here in soho and so we're in this um we've, we have got our own space with no disturbance but but you know the guys around have still got to get on with their life. And um, so there is a sort of <laughs> chink of plates and clatter occasionally. So anyone who's listened to it, just bear with us. But John, I've, I've just had just the most fascinating weekend because I've been at D-Day, Ohio. And I've just met the most incredible people. And, and the thing about, about D-Day, Ohio, which, which I seem to remember you hadn't heard about. I mean, it's a 50,000 punter weekend. Mm-hmm. So it runs kind of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then everyone packs up on Sunday. And it's this huge thing, which is run entirely voluntarily mm-hmm. from this little town called Conneaut, which is on the shores of Lake Erie. And it's kind of, do you know what? I was driving around the back street, you know, the back lanes around there in the countryside because we were trying to find where the airborne drop was. And it reminded me of fried green tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, <laughs> which I know is supposed to be set in Tennessee or somewhere, or Alabama or somewhere, but, but in the deep south. But it had that kind of sort of homey kind of rural America kind of clapperboard houses and old wooden barns and creeks and woodland and fields and all that kind of stuff and railroads all over the place had that kind of feel to it and the, and the town of Conneaut itself is is a lovely little town i mean it's very much kind of you know how as a brit i i sort of imagine the backwaters of of the united states and i say backwaters in, in no derogatory way whatsoever i mean it was absolutely charming again lots of clapperboard houses and you know wide streets and the diner in the center of town and civic buildings and the church and the kind of the public park and all the rest of it but at the edge of the public park is this kind of bluff down to a beach, and then there is Lake Erie. And there's more than a passing resemblance to Omaha Beach. And apparently, I was talking to the brilliant Betsy, who is the CEO who runs it over, you know, she's the overall all head honcho and an absolutely remarkable person because she runs it out of her own free time. I mean, it is the whole thing is done voluntarily, there is no cost to come in whatsoever. You know, everyone gives their time. 
their own private collection of, of material. Literally everything you see there is privately owned, you know, from the tents to the equipment, to the tanks, to the weapons, to everything. And she was saying that apparently what, what happened was back in 2001, there was a guy there who thought, gosh, this looks like Omaha Beach. You know, maybe we should do a reenactment here. And, and literally the first year it was kind of sort of two men and a dog. And, and it's grown into this huge thing where, you know, you have sort of 50, 60,000 people over the weekend in 2019. Then COVID hits. And this year they're right back to kind of, you know, where they were, you know, so it was kind of seven and a half thousand on the Thursday, 15,000 on the Friday, 25, 30,000 on the, on the Saturday. I mean, it was absolutely heaving. And there's this huge encampment, American and Duke forces. I was pleased to see. Um, and German, of course, but but I didn't see any SS, so you know nothing dodgy. It's always good. good. Always good. Just just uh-huh. the um, just the Wehrmacht, and about thirteen hundred reenactors, and the centerpiece. They have little actions and training things and all sorts of stuff going on throughout the day. But the big sort of the big set pieces, three to three thirty, is this huge reenactment of D Day of the landings. Right. And they have the different beaches. They so they have Canadians on one bit and British on another bit and Americans on another bit. This huge beach is covered with beach obstacles. You know, the uh, the, the the cross bits of metal, I can't remember the what hedgehogs. they're called. Yeah. Hedgehogs, yeah, all that, and Belgian gates and all this kind of stuff, and, huh. uh, and the uh, Rommel's asparagus. It's all there. They had three Higgins boats, two ducks. So they're kind of the, the, what they do is they pick up all the infantry from, from one end of the beach where the punters can't see it and bring them in to shore and there is there's a whole load of tanks and and there's artillery and there's low-flying aircraft i mean the mustang that was flying over was literally zero feet so was the dakota and the c-47 and there's germans on the bluffs and down below and that and it's just the most incredible rate of firing i mean you've never seen anything like it but in between all that and the smoke and there's all the rest of it and the fog of war and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and obviously, you know, it's a long way from reality, but it does give you a kind of a taste of flavor, I suppose. Um, and it's certainly an amazing spectacle. And in between, you can go and wander around all the encampments and talk to people. There was a German on a horse, which I was quite pleased to see, for example. Um, you can go into First Army headquarters, which is a sort of huge, great tent, and everything in it is perfect, from the kind of typewriters to the fold-away chairs to the, to the bunks to the kind of, you know, everything, the smell of it, the, the smell of canvas and rope and, and what have you. And anyway, I had a great time kind of hoovering up, up podcast material and going talking to lots of people. But... One of the things I kept asking them was, was you know, how do you think the the heritage of, of World War Two is over here, and 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 you know, what how do you, how do you think it's commemorated, and what do you think the future is, and all this kind of stuff? It was really really interesting, and an incredible cross section of people. I mean, you know, by no stretch were all the people there, you know, politically aligned to one end of the spectrum. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. You know, it was a real cross section of people, um, an incredible range of age you know i talked to retired u.s army colonels who were doing it but i also talked to a school teacher who was in charge of the uh, the infantry on the ground i also talked to a couple of guys who were in the um in inverted commas the big red one the first infantry division who were both in their early 20s you know and they were you know i was saying why are you doing it well it was because you know they had a grandfather who'd been in and you know he helped foster his interest in it and blah 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 and he's keeping the torture life for his grandfather's memory and a lot of that kind of stuff and it was just absolutely fascinating 
Yeah, you know, I, I actually had heard of this a long time ago. I've just never been there. And but I was right. almost there as a reenactor way back when, you know, when I was younger. I was a, um, a ranger reenactor, a D Company 2nd Ranger Battalion. And there was a lot of talk that our unit eventually, you know, might end up being part of that because it is a kind of all hands on deck kind of thing. That and then there was another like tactical battle at Camp Atterbury in Indiana, which was uh, not D-Day related. You know, very much World War II tactical related, um, and th- and this one, you know, all of a sudden just burst on the scene about twenty years ago, and it's it's really seems to have grown ever since. So I've, I've kind of monitored a little bit from afar all these years and wondered what it was like. So when I heard you were going, you told me you were going. I, I just thought that that's a really cool opportunity to see that up front. I don't know. I keep sort of sort of like changing my views about reenacting, really, because on one on one level. It's playing at soldiers, but I think that's I think that's doing reenactors a massive disservice. I think it's much more than that. I think it's 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 interesting. We, so I went over with um, uh, with a good pal of mine, great friend of mine, Stuart Bertie, who has become a friend since doing the podcast, and who is an ace photographer. He's an architect, but he's a he's a brilliant photographer. So all the photographs you see on the We Have Ways Fest website and everything. They're all stupid. Oh, he's done those. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I will, I will send you after this. I'll send you some of the photos he took. They're just yeah, insane. Cool. And anyway, so he came out with us. And, and the reason we were out there was because back in May, I was, doing a, I was doing a little tour to Malta. And one of the guys who came was a lovely fellow called Rich Brimer, who used to be in the U.S. Air Force and is now, I think, a, a pilot for Southwest. Does that sound about right? You know, one of the airlines down Yeah, down that's south. a major one. Yeah. Okay, so Southwest. I think the Southwestern or Southwestern. Southwest. Anyway, he's a pilot for them. And he was telling us about about Konya and 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 this amazing experience. And he is part of a group called World War II Armor, and they are based uh, on a farm just north of Orlando in Florida. That's where this group is, and it's owned. The whole thing is owned by this extraordinary fellow who's just the most charming man, called Rabbi Rob Thomas. And Rabbi Rob is an ordained rabbi. Hmm. Um. Second World War is very personal to him because a lot of his family were slaughtered in the Holocaust, although his family got to the his side of the family got to the US before that. And you know, he he's done well in computer coding in the in the kind of eighties and nineties. And so it started to form this this collection. You know, it started off with an original Thompson gun, then he got another one. Then someone said, Oh, well, you know, you need this and you need that. And before you know where he is, he's Gross. got three he's got three Shermans, a Pershing, a Stuart. Yeah, so he he's built up this huge collection and he takes it incredibly seriously. You know, for him, these are these are, are weapons that are designed to to kill other people. You need to treat them with a huge amount of respect, but they're also antiques. There's not one thing there that's with the exception of the Pershing that's not eighty years old, at least. He's also got the only active 155 millimeter long tom um, in the world that still survives, that's still firing. And uh, he's got a priest. He's got all sorts of stuff. And he's built this collection. He's got this huge farm full of barns where all this stuff is. He's now got 12 people full-time employed working on this. They have a whole load of volunteers who are vetted to the nth degree until the, before they join. So they've got to be the they've got to buy into the ethos. You know, you're a team. That everyone's got to be a good bloke. Everyone's got to understand that this is a heritage project. That you've got to treat your stuff really respectfully, and to 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 operate it respectfully, you have to train in the way they would have trained in World War II. So they have a huge archive of, and library of of training notes and, and videos and and documents and all sorts of stuff 
So a bit like the Garrison Artillery Volunteers, who you would have seen at We Have Ways Fest last year, they take it, this, isn't, this is not mucking about stuff. Right. Just the most incredibly diverse bunch of people in terms of sort of background views, thoughts. But what bonds them, of course, is a mutual interest in the subject matter. And they take it all really seriously. They all have a huge laugh. I mean, it, just like any military unit, the whole thing operates around a huge amount of piss-taking. There's a guy called Mason there who hates being hugged, so of course they all hug him all the time. <laughs> um, everyone has nicknames, which you have to earn, and, and it's basically sort of a, a stamp of affection, of course. Mm-hmm. So, so Stu and I were very flattered on the last night when we had a, we were presented with with um, World War II Armor Fan Club T-shirts, which they only issue to kind of you know their favorite people, and we were both given given new nicknames. That's when you knew you were in. Yeah, we knew we were in. We've, my nickname is Banger because I because I bang on and I bang out words. And I was <laughs> I was put on the 155 crew, um, albeit not actively, just sort of standing behind, not getting in the way um, mm-hmm. for, for the second battle. And Stu was nicknamed Kodak. Oh, his, well, of course. Yeah, yeah that makes total sense. Yeah. We felt secretly rather chuffed about all this. But the long and short of it is... You know, you can't sit there being being snooty about reenactors when you're talking to these guys because they are actually furthering our understanding of how these things operated. Absolutely. The world, which yep. then furthers our understanding, wider operation, understanding of how the war worked. And on top of that, it then, you know, they are then safeguarding the heritage. And it's that safeguarding the heritage they take very seriously. And the two main guys who, who work under Rabbi Rob, who are there permanently, are Mike and Eric, both of whom are combat veterans. Both who've seen plenty of service and, you know, I think won gallantry awards for what, they, what they've done. You know, they're serious players. You know, they know, they know what they're about. And they have that kind of natural authority. Everyone kind of listens to what they say. And, and the whole thing was, has just been fascinating to be kind of sort of embedded with them, but also have the free reign to go and do whatever we wanted. So we also went on, we went on the, you know, the Higgins boats and stuff. Oh, nice. Um, Amy, the coxswain, who's training to be a Spitfire pilot, was also the coxswain and, and you know, is absolutely obsessed. Started off in Civil War reenacting, mm-hmm. progressed to World War II, is, is on the board of some museum in Buffalo, New York. Uh, and she was absolutely delightful as well and took us out on the Higgins boat. And it was fascinating to be there and hear the engines and see yeah. see the wires either side as she was controlling the steering. And you could see it moving back. You could see how basic it was and all this sort of stuff. The, the kind of, you know, when the, when another sh- a boat came past us, we kind of sort of went over the, over, the, um, over the wake and the spray came up over the front of the bow and all that kind of stuff. I mean, this is stuff you can't, you can't put a price on as a historian. Well, and the other thing, too, it brings a lot of eyeballs to it uh, because you know, how many yeah. kids went there this weekend and were enthralled with what they saw? Can you imagine it right. from the eyes of a kid? Imagine yeah. if we were kids and we saw something like that. I mean, uh, you know, it's just off the charts. So I think there's a lot of people who get very interested through reenacting. So it is. It's public outreach and education. And when it's done respectfully, like these guys are just off the charts. And I think most are. I mean, I, I think it's terrific. I mean, I, you know, I have to say it furthered my understanding of mm. just what, just what it's like to, you know, have, have the kit on and, and, uh, you know, deal with the weapons. And even if they're repros, it's still the same mm-hmm. kind of thing. It's blank ammunition. So it's not like live. I mean, of course, but still you have some sense of what the weapons sound like, what their characteristics are, what this whole thing is. I really think it's a great thing because it's, it's the ultimate kind of tactile learning but I'll say this with the caveat that when it's at its worst, sometimes it's uh, it's weird agendas, you know, like um, if somebody is wants to be part of an SS unit or something for that 
you know, weird reason. Yeah, you do have some people like that. But I think that's kind of a minority. Um, well, I don't know whether they don't have SS because they feel morally it's a, it's a dodgy thing, or because there weren't any SS on D-Day, which there weren't. So you know, there's no reason to uh, no no historic reason of having SS there. We had one that we would quote fight against, and and uh, not like that, that these guys were you know crypto Nazis or something like that. But uh, but I always did kind of wonder why why do you want to portray SS? Or maybe because of the cool uniforms or something. I don't know, but it just seemed. I don't know. It just seemed to sort of cross a line, but at the same time, I understand you don't want to cross out history either. So I, I do think that's a little dodgy. Uh, but I also think they, a lot of, I mean, this country, Civil War reenacting, of course, is, has been just huge and it continues to be huge, really larger than World War II. Um, and, and I do think over the years, there have been some people on the Confederate side, especially who have an agenda or whatever. You know, you've read the book Confederates in the Attic. Probably yes, um, yes, which is yes, absolutely. So eye-opening on a lot of levels, but but I but again, I, I think that's the minority, and and you can tell pretty quickly if you're dealing with well, someone like that. I don't yeah, know. absolutely. I mean, I would say to a man and to a woman, frankly, there were lots of women as well. Um, those at D-Day Ohio were people who were just absolutely, totally fascinated with the subject. And they do it because they want to get close to something. They want to. Yeah. They want to feel a connection to their grandfathers or great uncle or or whoever or father or whoever it might be. They want to understand that conflict a little bit better. They absolutely have clearly have a profound sense of wanting to commemorate and and wanting to kind of pay homage to people that they feel should not be forgotten. You know, and there were veterans there. And the veterans came down, and of course they were treated like royalty, and everyone fated fated them and stuff. And check this out, John, because I the the, the kind of the, the the golfing buggy came down with six vets, and they came down to the World War II armor kind of tank line where all the tanks and priests and everything were all lined up. And I got in there and, and talked to a couple of them, and the first one was this really really old guy. He looks so frail. I mean. I, I did record it. I don't know whether it will come out enough, whether it's clear enough. I hope so. But he'd been in the 3rd Infantry Division. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I said to him, you know, and I said to him, so where were you serving? And he went pretty much everywhere. Was So do you know which regiment he was in? No. But he was in the 3rd. So I said to him, um, okay, so you, you saw a lot of action and stuff. And, and I said, said, do you think about it much? And he said, well, when I, when I got back, he said it took me a little bit while. You know, if someone would suddenly call me, I had to really check myself to turn around and not punch him in the face. Sure. Or words to that effect. I, I mean, I, I don't blame him. You got to get out of that mindset. Yeah, yep. And then I spoke to another guy. He'd been an artillery spotter. And he was saying the time that he was up in a, you know, in a piper. And he was the spotter. And the pilot said, don't look now, but but I'm going to have to dive down and um, and dive down and get out of here really quickly. And he said, why? And he said, well, can you not see that we're under attack? Look behind you. He said, there was a Messerschmitt 109 on their tail. Oh, God. Kind of winking at them with the guns flashing, you know, with the wings flashing and all the rest of it. And, um, and, and the, suddenly realized the bullets were sort of going straight through, um, <laughs> but they're okay. But they managed to dive down and the measurement just went straight into the side of a hill. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, yeah. obviously, you know, the Piper doesn't have the speed, but it's got the maneuverability. Yeah. So. And uh, that, that fighter pilot had really committed to the dive. But of course, you know, the, these guys were, were treated like rock stars and, and quite right too. You, you, you sent this sense this, this sort of profound respect and everyone I spoke to said, well, I, you know, I want to honor the guys who, who did this. You know, that's what it's all about. And, and as I say, you know, I think it's, it's easy to be snooty 
easy to kind mm-hmm. of be supercilious about this stuff and, and, and kind of look down your nose at it. But, but I think people who are trying to understand better a, a period in our history and who want to learn more and who are deeply respectful, it's kind of what's not to like, isn't it? I mean, you know, how, how can you be snooty about that? You shouldn't. I think it's great. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, that's condescending then. Uh, no, this is, right. this is educational. And, and when it's people are doing it the right way, I mean, that, that is, is not easy to do. To, you know, to get that kind of training properly, to kid out properly, to get in character or whatever, uh, when you have the, a public reenactment or whatever it would be. Yeah, I mean, this isn't just fly-by-night kind of stuff. Plus, also buying a lot of this, you know, the, the material that you need, the, the uniforms, the weaponry and all that. Sometimes that's not cheap. So, you kind of have to be serious about it. And you're, and you're going to lend toward doing a little more research, too. Uh, almost everybody I've ever known who's involved in World War II reenacting is very into researching World War II. And a lot of times at the very micro level, admittedly, you know, well, I want to know what boots they were wearing in November 44. You know, I want to have that. As, I'm trying to find photographic evidence of that. And yeah, okay. I mean, that's, that's a minor thing in the larger span of World War II, but still the point is they're trying to get it right. And isn't that what we always want as historians? Isn't that what we rail upon with films or whatever? That they're wrong and we want to get it right. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and so I, I commend that. And that's, that's what I thought was pretty cool about the, the, at least in my little small circle, the people who were involved in, in my unit. Also, wanted, like you said, wanted to commemorate. They wanted to be close to what this was. They wanted to get it right. Uh, they really wanted eyeballs on rangers and the, in the ranger world, which... I mean, I think that's commendable too. I'm always all for that. It was a pretty neat deal, but it was also very demanding of time to get this right, to do it right. It's a lot of your weekends. It's a lot of your your free time and, and money and all, you know, all that kind of stuff too. And that even more so to the point though, don't you think that people are willing to do this aren't just fly by night. You know, you got to respect what they're doing and who they are. 100%. I've got another thought on that, but let's take a quick break and uh, we'll come back to it on the, uh, when we come back. We're just going to take a quick break and we'll talk some more about this when we're back. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus. And we've been talking about D-Day Ohio and commemoration and reenactment and respect for the past and so on and so forth. And and John, it's interesting you're talking about, about details. My goodness me. So Stu and I were absolutely fine to wear civvies most of the time. But if we wanted to go down and be with the World War II armor guys and we wanted to be have a sort of ringside view on the on the battle which i absolutely did and i wanted to go and hang out with the 155 crew <laughs> we had a being kit and that was absolutely non-negotiable and and completely fair enough and i felt a bit weird about about doing it but it, you know i kind of thought okay well what the heck so anyway, I, I had a pair of rough cut boots, which is the kind of boots that were issued in uh, for just before D-Day. Um, you know, these these sort of inverted leather leather boots, which are kind of rough on the outside. And Rabbi Rob took great exception to the to the to my boots because they weren't worn in enough. 
and he said, you know, you need to have dubbing on them and they need to be, you know, the kind of roughness needs to be smoothed out. And he said, Jim, you know, if you could just work in a bit of mud and sand in there, you know, from time to time, just keep going, just kind of wear them down a little bit. You know, everything had to be perfect, which I thought was hilarious. So fortunately, I, I had a pair of HTB overalls, coveralls. You just happen to have them with you? Well, I bought them years ago at some oh, kind okay. of, you know, fair for kind of, you know, five quid or something. And, um, you know, I wear them about the garden if I need a pair of overalls. I, I, I put them on. And I suddenly thought, oh, this is perfect for a tank crew. So I was wearing those. But I had to wear the gaiters because although they gave up on the gaiters as the campaign progressed, on the 6th of June, 1944, they were absolutely all wearing them. So you yeah, had to wear the right. stuff. I had to wear the wear the, um, the little side cap, the field cap, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And I had my tanker's jacket and blah, 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 and my, my, my dark green shirt and you know, you had to look the part. Uh, and, and that in itself was quite interesting. And actually, I, I rather like my coveralls. Because <laughs> I've always just worn them over a pair of jeans, you know, when I'm doing the garden or something. Or kind of doing something on the truck. But to just wear them as without the jeans underneath, they're incredibly comfortable. I mean, really comfortable. So I might start wearing them as a sort of Churchill-esque romper suit or something <laughs> your brandy and cigars right yeah, yeah exactly i think i think it's going to be my look at we have waste fest is wandering around in my coveralls i'm i'm really into it um but maybe not the leggings which take oh my god, oh are, they god a pain? I hate those. are they a pain in the butt to put on they're the worst i don't know whoever came up with the idea to have them they're the worst that god i can't tell you how much i hate leggings. but also the united states that you know they're into zips and poppers why don't they have zips and poppers i don't know i i just I, i've never figured that out I just said that is the biggest thing that I hated with such a passion. String and eyelets. Oh, and I, I thank God that you could find photographic evidence that Rangers had worn jump boots, corker and jump boots. Um, so I just dealt with those. I, I'm just like, all right, I'm done with these. Because also the Brogan style boots are not comfortable. They're not supportive. I don't know who ever came up with that idea that you'd have an ankle high boot as your main combat boot. Really? Uh, and then the leggings are supposed to take care of the rest. I mean, I, I don't get it they're horrid the absolute must-have item if you're in world war ii armor if you're a, if you're a world war ii tanker is this very special ankle boot which has these kind of little straps and things yeah and there's a maker in mexico there's some guy in mexico there's a guy in california who, who sells them and he gets them made in mexico and they're 300 dollars. and once you once you're a wedded part of world war ii armor that's what you, as a as a member of that group, a member of that group, want to purchase. And anyone who's been there any length of time has their own boot. But obviously, you know, Stu and I were kind of, you know, Johnny Come Latelys and and kind of newbies, and so it was the gators for us. But I tell you what, it it is fascinating because you know one of the one of the tents and little um, little setups they had was the 101st Airborne. 560th Dental Corps or Dental Company or whatever, and so there was a dentist tent with all the Second World War kit in it, the seats, the drills, all the stuff. And I said, God, you know, glad I wasn't, wasn't having to, um, you know, have dental work with, with, with any of them. And apparently one year someone had a kind of needed emergency dental work and he kind of set to it. Really? A, ah. Yeah, mended a filling with all the, all the Second World War stuff. So you, you're seeing all this stuff and touching it and feeling it and kind of getting a sense of the smell and the, the kind of, how it all works and you know seeing how this 155 for example this long tom had to see how that operated was really interesting you know and what a sophisticated piece of kit it is it was 
one's knowledge is only enhanced by kind of looking at all this. It is. That's exactly it. I mean, your knowledge is definitely enhanced because you, now you know how that crew works. You know what the what the sound of the, the gun is, the feel of it, the ordnance, all of that kind of stuff then becomes a little bit more second nature to you. It's the tactile side of what we do to be able to connect in this way with World War II. And that's, I think, extraordinarily valuable in, in furthering understanding. I know, I know that I have a much better understanding for having done a li- just a little bit of this. I think we're very much on the same peg on this. But but generally, John, I mean, how do you feel um, understanding, appreciation of World War II is in the USA? I mean, there's, lots of, there's obviously lots and lots and lots of people who aren't the remotest bit interested in history and couldn't give a damn. And, and you know, that was yesterday and, you know, many years ago now. And, and it's, it's just not on their radar at all. But, you know, any event that's pulling 50,000 people to a remote corner of the state of Ohio, I mean, that's suggestive, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I think there's a a general respect for World War II veterans in this country and for commemoration. And I I think there's one thing, one of the few things Americans can agree on. It's that, and especially D-Day, which obviously is the low-hanging fruit of the whole thing. And uh, almost anybody, no matter who you are, has heard of that at least and associates it with the Higgins boats and whatever. Saving Private Ryan is a huge part of why, I think. So, yeah, I mean, the commemorations, what you'll see here is every year uh, media stories around June 6th or or the Battle of the Bulge or whatever, you know, the big kind of battles. And then they'll, there'll be quotes from veterans. And a lot of times, honestly, a lot of times, Jim's the quotes or whatever, it makes me cringe because, you know, they'll be talking about Omaha Beach and it's clearly someone who was no one near, nowhere near Omaha Beach. It, just they were involved somewhere in England in the invasion or something. And, you know, and, and all of a sudden, because the, whoever has written the story just doesn't really understand the distinction and all that. And that's where we haughty historians come into the mix and say, no, that's wrong. I mean, how could you have done that or whatever? But, but I also think in the bigger picture, it's good that there are stories like that. Um, in terms of memorials, that's a different animal. Um, the memorials are pretty substantial, starting with the main one in D.C., the World War II Memorial, which is beautiful and, and commemorates every state and, and I think gets it right on, on so many levels. Um, and then, you know, the, the another one is the World War II Museum itself, which in, in some mm-hmm. ways is a memorial, in other ways is a thriving academic enterprise, too. I mean, that wouldn't exist if there wasn't great interest in this country. And that it's not going away. But it's not taught at school, really, is it? I mean, obviously, you teach at a university, but it's not taught at school, at well, high school. Well, it's a mix. I, I think it just depends which high school we're talking about. Um, oh, really? I think so there's a very broad curriculum, is it? There's a broad curriculum, and I think you're likely, more likely as not, to have had some exposure to World War II in school. Now, what that would be and how substantial, I don't know. I mean, but and what would be the thrust of it? I think what you see in a lot of schools now is um, a recognition of the, the kind of seamier side of the war, uh, the internment of Japanese Americans, um, obviously segregation, Jim Crow, the Port Chicago explosion, um, you know, what, or, or on a more uplifting level, the Tuskegee Airmen or the 761st Tank Battalion. Uh, I guess you could say more of the multicultural side of the war, which, of course, was long overdue and needed. Uh, but I also think sometimes maybe that's a little bit at the expense of understanding something of the causes of the war, the grand right. strategy, the great effects of the war. It's one of these things. If you're gonna if you're gonna delve into it, it's gonna end up being a deep dive. And so, as a if I'm a um, history teacher, say at the junior high level or, or high school level, 
I'm probably going to have to pick and choose a couple of themes from World War II and then move on to whatever, because there's a lot more to cover. Um, so what I get by the time they come to my university classroom is a mix. You know, some people have really had a lot on World War II. And, you know, because they happen to have had a teacher who taught, like, a class about World War II. In fact, some of my former students have become teachers who do that now. Or they maybe have gotten involved in video game, you know, video games, plural, whatever, in which they're very well versed in World War II. That's that's educational, too. Um, And then... I've got other people who were like, so we were on the allied side, you know, (laughs) know, where they've hardly had anything. And that doesn't mean they're dumb. It just means they haven't really been exposed to it. I think it's hard for us as old people, or I'm old, you're you're not as old as I am, but to to like go back to that formative stage. We're not old, John. We're still in the first flush. We're still youthful and full of vigor and vim. If only I felt so youthful every day, right? It's, um, well, I know, I know, I know. You know how that goes. But, it, but you know, it's hard to go back to that, that formative mindset, isn't it? Where everything's new, where you're 10 years old and you don't know who's on the allied side or whatever, and you're learning again. And, and so, I, I, you know, when I hear that, I am very careful to not look down on them and say, well, God, you should know that, you idiot or something. You know, it's like, no, here's what it was, and you just explain it again. And people get interested. You know, every so often we have outraged articles in, in the Daily Mail or something where it says, you know, only 15% of school children have ever heard of, of D-Day or know the difference between Battle of Britain and Battle of Hastings or whatever it might be. <laughs> and, you know, every so often I get asked for my comment on that. And I sort of think, well, I don't really think it matters, to be perfectly honest, because, you know, when you're a teenager, you know, your, your worldview is so small. It's, mm-hmm. it's about your mates and whether you're going to be playing sport and whether you're going to get the boy, get the girl, whatever. Um, and, you know, your outlook is very, very narrow. And, and you know, there might be some historical story which, which sort of sparks an interest in stuff. But, but really, it's just, it's nothing, you know. I know. But it is the one academic subject that one studies at school that, that you can go back to in later life and, and learn and be interested in vocationally. Because as you get older and, you know, you, you know more about life and the world and everything, how, how we got to where we got to becomes more interesting and more pertinent. And so you're more aware of a kind of sort of wider context to your own existence. And I think that sparks a greater interest. So, you know, the number of people who've said, have said to me, oh, you know, I hated history at school. It was really boring. Oh, but then I got really into Second World, War, <laughs> Second World War, age 32 or whatever. Um, you know, and I think that's absolutely fine. And I think that unlike a lot of other academic subjects, it's not the kind of thing, you know, chemistry, you're unlikely to pick it up at age 33, are you? You know, once, once you're done with chemistry, you're done. Um, and you either take it onto your onto your career or you don't. But but once you're out of school and you haven't decided you've decided not to become a chemical engineer or whatever, you tend to kind of put it to bed. Whereas history, you can come back to, and I think that's so. I think it's fine, and I think it's that, that's a, that's a great thing about the history and a great thing about studying it. I don't think it matters that you don't know anything about it at school or you found it boring. You can come to it anytime you like. It oh yeah, and I think it tells us that they're young and and they're still going to be learning. I mean, you know, and, I, and I'll bet, I'll bet you any amount of money that if we talk to our colleagues in the other fields, math, uh, you know, physics, um, I don't know, political science, whatever it is, they would find the same level of ignorance of things they should think are staple. You don't know how to do this equation or, you know, you've never been exposed to this theorem in geometry or you don't understand, um, you know, this political philosophy. I mean, we all think that's fundamental because that's our our world, right? So, uh, I mean, that's yeah, yeah. to me just part of being that age. And but there's a lot to teach people in all these various subjects, you know. And so, I mean, believe me, I know because I, you know, like later today, 
I'm going to be starting a, a U.S. history class, a brand new U.S. history survey class with, you know, mostly freshmen. And these are sort of empty vessels in a way. But there's a big difference between being ignorant or not knowing and, and being dumb. I mean, it's, it's they're smart people. But that's why you're here to educate them is the way I look at right. it. And, and right. so being condescending about it or something is very beside the point. And it's going to be off-putting anyway, isn't it? Um, yeah, so, yeah. You know, and, but, but also uh, what I try to convey to them is the urgency that I think is very important to be an educated person uh, and understand something in history. Because if you don't, you're, you really are a perpetual child. And you're going to be shaped by the people and influenced by the people who do know and manipulated maybe and exploited whatever it could be. Um, and so when we look at our world war II commemoration, I think it's important to know where a lot of it's coming from, why we choose to emphasize why, why, for instance, are we constantly obsessed with commemorating D day? Uh, and we hardly even look at Saipan or something, right? Um, you know, so that's the part you'd say, okay, well, why is that? What is that telling us? What's meaningful about it? Um, why were, why were African-American soldiers so anonymous in the American recollection of World War II for a long period of time? Well, that had to do with some very serious political conflict in, the, in this country, where you had Jim Crow white supremacists trying to really suppress knowledge and, and memory of African-American contributions in the war as a means of continuing that kind of life and mentality, and African-Americans pushing back and saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, and that, that so it, it again points to the fact that history really matters substantially, materially today. And even World War II, as long as ago as it was, still really matters. We're constantly competing over the memory of history, aren't we? Yeah, we absolutely are. And I, but I think also, I think it's been ever thus that, that young, young lads are, for the most point, kind of pretty ignorant of the past. Uh, and I do remember very clearly talking to Bucky Walters, who was a... Um, it was a sergeant in the heavy weapons company of one of the uh, regiments in the 34th Red Bulls, 142nd, I think. Um, I remember him getting to Rome and, and one, of, one of the guys in his Jeep saying, they, they reached the Colosseum and he was saying, but I, I thought we hadn't bombed Rome. <laughs> and they were at the Colosseum. <laughs> never heard of it. That's what no, I'm saying. So it's not new, right? I mean, it's, it's no, exactly that. It's a, well, I'll, do, I'll tell you a little anecdote about that. It's not World War II, but it's the same kind of thing. The the 7th Infantry Regiment, which, of course, is my unit. I mean, I'm the historian for them, and they have a long history. War of 1812 through now, okay? So um, they were, of course, out on the frontier. What is the campaign that leads to Little Bighorn and all that? And so right. you've got this patrol that's out there, you know, looking for the Lakota Sioux and whatnot. And they find these privates, find these markings on rocks that basically were put there by Lewis and Clark. And one of the guys with them, you know, one of their lieutenants knows all about this. The the uh, the privates were about to wipe it out. They're like, who the hell are Lewis and Clark? What is it? You know, <laughs> so it's like the same yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. And the lieutenant is appalled. He's like, don't yeah. you touch that. That is a major historical heirloom. And they're like, what? Who's that? It's the exact same thing, isn't it? And so it's just the way things go, especially young guys. Mm -hmm. You know, you're 18. Like you said, you're hanging around with your mates. You're worried about your own little world. What do you need to know all this for? Yeah, and I think it's exactly that. But your general impression is that 
you know, the heritage of, of World War II in the US is in pretty healthy state. The, 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 the interest isn't going to die out anytime soon. And don't forget, we've got Masters of the Air coming out. We've got other films coming out. Well, you know, we just said Oppenheimer, there's a smash, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're making a movie, aren't they, of um, of one of Adam Makos's books, Spearhead. I think they're making a movie of that. That's that's in the pipeline. On Netflix, we've got a, a movie coming out about the 6888, uh, the, the African-American oh. whack unit, uh, you know, that's tailing about half the postage in the European theater by late fall for 44 into 45. Right. Uh, Tyler Perry is, is heading up that. Uh, my friend Kevin Hemel wrote the article that it's based on. So uh, I think it's I think it's a very healthy state of affairs in, in that respect. Yeah. Um, there, there just seems like with World War II, there's never any end to the interest, happily enough for you and me, I guess, right? Well, quite. But it's, it's just such a period of extraordinarily intense human drama, isn't it, that it continues to enthrall and, you know, it continues to kind of captivate us because... It's a long time ago, but it's not a long time ago. It's a pinprick in time ago in terms of kind of the history of the world. The tentacles are still there. And, you know, we all think, gosh, what would it what would have been like for us if we'd been through it? And and, you know, of course we're gonna continue to be interested in it. The reverberations are still there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it honestly it's been such a fascinating weekend. I'm so glad I went. You know, because you go over it's such a bit it's, you know, it's, it's not a small commitment to go all the way to to rural Ohio to to for for a weekend. Um and you know, you just don't know quite what you're going to get and what you're going to see. What I got, what what I came away with more than anything else was a bunch of really, really lovely people who were just interested in the subject. Really pleased that that Stu and I had come over. Absolutely delighted to see some limeys, um, and and that there was real, very real passion, concern for for what they do, concern for you know keeping the torch alive and, and commemorating respectfully and all that kind of stuff. So so it was nothing but a totally positive experience which you know it might easily not have been so um you know hats off to all the organizers i mean really i i'm, I'm blown away that they do it all for nothing i mean it's 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 just incredible and, and and really amazing to see so you know hooray points to that level of dedication too they're doing it for nothing it's probably costing them money too about some time i'm sure you know headaches well you're talking about commitment i mean Ra- rabbi rob's wobble two armor they've got to come from florida from just That's a long from orlando, from orlando. Just, 1,200 miles, you know, all those tanks have got to go on low loaders all the way. All the planning there. We're always talking about transportation logistics. There you go, right? I mean, It's a 10-day it's a operation for three days on the ground. You know, that's, crazy. A, that's a- To get that 155 there, I wonder how they, they shipped it. On a low loader. Really? Yeah. Wow. There's a whole fleet of them that, that come all the way from Florida. So, and, and, and there's got to be money in there somewhere. Somebody paying for all this. Well, Rabbi it's Rob is, just, you know, he's, he's funded funding it. And, Rabbi and, Rob you know, it's, does it himself. Yeah. It's really? his thing. And that's what he does. And this is their mm. premier event of the year. And it's a, it's a big deal. This is what they work for, you know, and they are training once a month, every weekend. You know, if you volunteer, you've got to, that's what you're committing to. Yeah, you've exactly. got to commit to do it. And you're, you're training how they would have trained in, in the second world war. So it's, it's, it's taken incredibly seriously. And, and there's, as you say, there's no room for any condescension whatsoever for there. I mean, you know, it's just hats off to them. And, and thank goodness they're doing it because all they're doing is enhancing our understanding of the past, which is, you know, as I say, is a, is, a, is a mighty fine thing. Yeah, well, you have to admire that level of commitment. Well, it reminds me of museums, too. The museum folks, yeah. it's, it's precisely the same thing. Exactly. Uh, tremendous level of commitment and, and knowledge. A lot of times at the micro level that, that I certainly don't have that, that I greatly admire. I mean, to be a curator, for instance, um, and all the pieces that you get, all the uh, weaponry, equipment, uniforms, kittage, whatever. I mean, to know all that, to process it, 
uh, and display it, the decision making and display. And there, there's where, again, public commemoration comes in. Um, how are museums set up? What are they featuring? Um, what are, what is the text that goes along with it? Does it have thematic interpretation? Is it just facts? I mean, exactly what? I mean, it, uh, one of the things I think I like to emphasize is that history is not just immutable. It's always kind of changing how we view it. And, you know, my interpretation may be completely different from yours. And, yeah, and yeah. yet we both know the same facts. And, and I right. think that's part of, I think, what makes it interesting, too. And then we can kind of see it differently. I mean, don't we see, in a way, the Eastern Front a little differently since the Russia-Ukraine war? I mean, hasn't that kind of affected? I have such a good point. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, well, listen, I mean, you can see, you can sense that I'm still sort of buzzing about it, really. I just thought it was such a, it was, I mean, it's a, it was an unforgettable experience. I mean, just to see it all, to see the scale of it, to hear it all. And, and also, I think, think most of all, the, the biggest takeaway of all was just to be so sort of warmly embraced and sort of come on in the waters warm um, was really lovely and, and hugely appreciated. Um, but John, good to see you as always. You know, we'll have our own little festival coming up because uh, we have Waze Fest is just around the corner. Um, this is coming out on Thursday. So tomorrow, Friday, it'll be just wow, a couple of weeks, two weeks away from We Have Waze Fest. Can't wait to see you over here again. And we've got our, our kind of huge range of talks and, and also lots of hardware. And, and, you know, you talk to some of the guys who, who look after that and they're, they're cut from exactly the same cloth as, as Rabbi Rob's mob. Um, there's absolutely no question about it. So looking forward to seeing you. But I will see you before that because I'll see you next, next week when we chat next week. Yeah, sounds good. Terrific. All right. Well, look after yourself. You too. Stay out of trouble if you can. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Cheerio for now. See ya.